0: I needed an illustration uh, this week of concentric circles, so the next, next slide is a uh, uh, Ryan and Ryan and I took, um, took time off from a bike ride out to the lake to try to come up with concentric circles. I think we should have used bigger rocks, though don't you? Uh, and then we didn't throw the rocks in fast enough, uh, so anyway. Um, that's, that's our example of concentric circles, if, in case you don't know what concentric circles are. There was once a young man in a Christian college who considered himself a pretty good person, uh, probably in, considered himself an average or maybe a little below average Christian. Normally, he went pretty well by the school rules that he went to, this Christian college, and things went fairly well. However, one day, he and a couple of friends decided to drive to a neighboring city and visit a nightclub, which was definitely against the rules of that particular Christian school. Those young men thought that they would never be found out. They thought that the act could be done and remain hidden forever from the dean of students. Little did they know that uh, no sooner than they got back and one of them would tell somebody else and he could call the dean immediately. But uh, anyway... They thought it would probably, even if they got caught, it wouldn't be too big of a deal. It just so happened that neither one of those suppositions was the case. They did get caught, and it was a big deal. It did have a huge effect not only on them, but their families and the school as well. The effect of that one night's activity worked much like those concentric circles in the, in the lake, uh, it, didn't, it wasn't just the one act, but the, uh, the, the circles radiated from that. It affected all kinds of things. The young men were suspended from school. Their parents were distressed and ashamed of them. Their younger siblings at home wondered what on earth they were doing home. Um, the administration had to make some uh, unpleasant choices. The student body was affected with a black eye for them. The church families were not particularly edified either by uh, the actions of those young men. That's kind of the nature of sin, isn't it? We don't realize at the time oftentimes, sometimes we think we'll never get caught, but uh, we don't. often don't realize that those circles just kind of keep on going, and sometimes they have effects for years in either our lives or the lives of those that we we come in contact with. So... Today we're looking at the second of two consequences of sin. We looked last week at uh, the conscience being affected uh, in the next slide. Conscience being affected, that would be of Adam and Eve's. Uh, They recognized their sinfulness, but they refused to admit it, at least they passed the buck. Uh, They kind of admitted it, but didn't really come out and say, yes, I did this, Uh, instead uh, passed the guilt on to somebody else. Then in verses 14 to 16, a curse is added. The curse on the tempter is seen in verses 14 and 16, where it says, "'The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, "'above all the beasts of the field. "'On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman, "'between your offspring and her offspring. "'He shall bruise your head.'" and you shall bruise his heel. The facts were in, the judge's decision is made, and he is now ready to deliver the sentence. To the serpent, he said, you'll be singled out from all the rest of God's creation, and a curse will be placed upon you. Uh, In the Bible, now he's not talking about cursing like we oftentimes think of. Rather, it's more the idea of... uh, In the Bible, it's a term meaning to invoke God's judgment on someone, usually for some particular offense. Then immediately was given the substance of the curse. What was the substance of the curse there in that first verse? To the the serpent. Do what? (laughs) Spend his life creeping on the ground in the dust. So I have a question for you. Does this mean that the snake once carried itself in an upright position? Maybe. That's a pretty good answer. Um, uh, Someone has suggested that perhaps the snake even had legs. What do you think? It's possible. We don't know that. In fact, one author says, because man was uh, appointed to rule as king over the entire earth creation, animals suffered along with man in the fall and the Edenic curse. But the serpent, unlike other animals, suffered the loss of limbs and will remain under this curse during the millennium as a horrible reminder of the fall and its continued spiritual effects even in the glorious age that is, the millennium. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'd never really thought about uh, that curse continuing. Isaiah 65, 25 says, The wolf and the lamb, and this is talking about the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of Christ. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And what does it say about the serpent? The serpent, uh, dust will be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in, in, in all my holy mountain. So, do we know for sure whether the serpent had legs? We don't know that. Uh, it seems like he may have been upright. Uh, but this we do know that the serpent's status was drastically changed uh, on this occasion for good. Eating dirt, obviously not for susten- sustenance, was <laughs> to be the norm for the snake. One other points out that since snakes don't literally feed on dust, many interpreters take this as an, a figurative statement. Eating dust is an expression used in other nation, ancient Near Eastern writings to describe the lowest of all forms of life. In the Bible, it also describes humiliation and total defeat. So I think, I think it would be largely uh, speaking of the spiritual flavor here rather than just, uh, just physical uh, another verse that points points to this concept Isaiah 49:23 now in this passage it's talking about the rulers of the gentiles treatment of Israel and that it will radically change during the millennium it says kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground they will bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet what would that mean submission uh, demonstrating submission to to Israel uh, in that context, and then it says, "Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame." So they were being put to shame. Uh, the those uh, Gentile nations that before had dominated Israel to such an extent, and now they're causing uh, being caused to lick the dust of the feet of their conquerors, Israel. Stephen Cole. Uh, has quite a bit to say about this, and I'll borrow some of his stuff throughout. So, Uh, God questioned the man and the woman because he wanted to lead them to repentance. But did he question Satan? He didn't. He didn't question, or rather, the serpent because there was no mercy for him. Uh, Instead, it says that God cursed the serpent. Uh, The curse appears to be on the actual snake, and on the one behind the snake, Satan. There would be antagonism between the ser- serpent and human beings. How many of you feel antagonistic towards serpents or snakes? The rest of you like them? You're kidding. Well, I knew there were some people that did. I know my dad used to pick them up, and they'd wrap around his arms, and I, uh, I well, I I kind of held them a few times, but never was my thing, uh, so I let dad take care of that. Uh, anyway, but there is a natural aversion to snakes uh, for many people, not everyone necessarily, but many people, that's true. Do you think that's the main thing, the main uh, point of the passage, an aversion to snakes and uh, there being an antagonism between the two? What do you think? What's the main thing, the main point of the passage? Anybody? Punishment for whom? For Satan? uh, Satan... Seems to be using, working through the snake here, and uh, and so that has a, a greater ramification for us than would just just uh, us getting along with snakes or liking snakes. It's kind of interesting. Uh, verse uh, chapter three, verse fifteen, has been called the proto-evangel, or the first gospel. The application appears to include more than just the snake as we know it today uh, from chapter uh, 3, verse 15. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You notice how the pronouns change in that. How does it start out? I will put enmity between you and the woman who is the you well it could be the snake partially but it seems to be more than that snake and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel is that just talking about a snake there it doesn't seems to be it seems to be a lot broader than that a lot more uh, of a gr- lot more consequence than just that. Seems to be, again, talking about Satan. Most, As one author says, most interpreters have recognized this verse as the first biblical promise of the provision of salvation. I do think that we need to be kind of careful in saying what it does say and doesn't say. Uh, it, is, it is rather vague. Uh, and if you didn't know what the New Testament said, would you know that that's, that was what it was a reference to? I don't think we would. I don't think Old Testament interpreters would have known that necessarily. I suppose God could have revealed that to them somehow, but uh, as far as we know, they wouldn't have known that without what you know from the New Testament, that, that the, um, the ramifications of that are far greater than just with a snake. It would seem to make the passage rather trivial if all it referred to was just men smashing snakes, which revolted, re- resulted in their deaths, and snakes biting men, which re- resulted in great damage and even sometimes death. He uses the term "their enmity. Uh, what would be some syn- synonyms for enmity? There's, he will cause enmity between the, the offspring, Yes? Strife, animosity, hatred, division, hostility, uh, or to treat as an enemy. Uh, some of those, uh, the, those would work uh, for this, this relationship between them. It's kind of interesting Martin Luther's take, take on it. He said, the devil had to live in continual dread of every woman's son that was born. Never thought of it exactly that way before. Uh, did the devil know ahead of time or Satan know ahead of time who the Messiah would be? Well, he could read the Bible, and he certainly is aware of it and probably knows it better than we do. Uh, so he, he would know what the Bible said about uh, biblical prophecy, but beyond that, he wouldn't have known uh, all there was to know about that one who would be born. In fact, what did he try to do, though? What was Satan attempts to bruise the heel of man as far as the birth of Christ was concerned? Kill all, kill, kill all the boys, uh, the babies, and uh, was he successful? Well, he wasn't successful in killing the Messiah, uh, even at giving it his best shot. So talks about here the seed of the woman uh, is true in the strictest sense, uh, only of the Lord in, in in view of the virgin birth of Christ, the bruising of the head and heel by the snake or the serpent or Satan on the cross, the Lord suffered a bruising. Uh, was it permanent? He didn't stay that way, did he? As opposed to... Uh, Satan's judgment will be permanent, will last forever. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and smitten our sh- carried our sorrows, yet we este- esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But thankfully, that was only temporary uh, for the Lord. By the, by the same token, at that time he crushed the head of Satan. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross with regard to Satan that was permanent? And taking into account what happened back in Genesis, too. You remember? Hebrews 2:14 says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Satan was destroyed at the cross. Now, wasn't uh, he didn't go out of existence at that time, but certainly his doom was sealed at that time. Christ's bruise was only temporary and capable of being remedied But Satan's demise was sealed and permanent. So how do you explain, then, that Satan appears to be alive and well on planet Earth right now? Is he? He is. We don't have to look far, do we? We don't even have to turn on the news. Uh, We know that, that that's the case. Well, the sentence is in, and the suffering from a fatal wound which will one day destroy him will take place. It's been stated behind the serpent, Satan is condemned to an existence of frustration and defeat. This is seen most pointedly in the cross, where Satan thought he had finally defeated God's program by killing the Savior. Can't you just imagine what it, uh, the celebration that uh, Satan must have been having at the cross, thinking, aha, he's defeated. But the cross was God's greatest victory because in it, in the resurre- resurrection of Christ, Satan's final doom was secured. Though during this age, God allows Satan some leash so that he wins some battles, he's going to lose the war. So he's, he's operating on borrowed time. And what, what, is he motivated? He's going to be highly motivated uh, in our lives. Aren't you thankful that he is not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, and uh, is he more powerful Powerful than we are? He absolutely is more powerful than we are, but who is he not more powerful than? He's certainly not more, more powerful than the Lord, and uh, we are on the Lord's side, or rather the Lord is on ours, and uh, so we are thankful for that. A person... When they choose to remain on Satan's side, in fact, what does the New Testament say about the person who's not a believer yet? What's his relationship with Satan? He is the servant or the slave of uh, of uh, Satan. The person who picks to who chooses to stay on that side is picking a loser, uh, even though it may not appear that way at the time. If you're on the Lord's side, you're on the winning side because it's a done deal as far as Satan's demise and what will happen to him. You know what it's like? It's choosing Satan and to stay on that side of things is about like picking a team that already lost in the NCAA tournament, you know, like all the number one seeds that got beat. Uh, Obviously, you're not going to go back and if if you could and you can't, uh, you're not going to go back and repeat that. So... It uh, really seems futile uh, for those who choose to stay on Satan's side and continue to be his servants throughout their lifetime. Another author continues, at the cross, Satan bruised Christ on the head. At first, the cross seemed like a great victory for Satan and a terrible defeat for God. But when Christ arose from the dead, the serpent was crushed on the head. What seems like Satan's moment of triumph was actually the eve of his greatest defeat. He thought he was gaining what he'd been after since he'd rebelled against God, but actually he was carrying out the sovereign purposes of God's eternal plan. And so here, in this context, when Adam and Eve could rightly have expected to be condemned to hell for their sin, God promises the defeat of Satan, the victory of the Redeemer, who would come from Eve's descendants. I'd call that amazing grace, wouldn't you, that, uh, that the Lord did that and uh, did that for us. Now, let's move on to the curse on the tempted, the curse on mankind. In verse 16, specifically the woman, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. These verses clearly demonstrate that sin does not simply affect the one who tries to get others to participate in it. It has a very definite effect on those who succumb to it as well, as as Adam and Eve did. The first thing you notice from there, he says, uh, you will surely, uh, your pain will surely be multiplied. Basically, what he does is he doubles the word that he uses there, in other words, you will really experience pain. It seems more consistent. Well, actually, there's some discussion there. One author uh, was of the opinion that uh, there evidently would have been some pain in the process of bearing children before the fall. What do you think? I kind of have a hard time with that. Uh, Why? Would there be pain in a perfect world? I don't think so. Uh, Sorry, I, I don't think most of us probably would agree with that. Uh, however, it seems more consistent with a perfect environment to have no pain planned prior to the fall of man. It resembled Revelation 21.4 uh, in the eternal state when it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away look forward to that time, don't we? It'll be a a renewal to to what it was like before, before sin entered uh, the world to bring about the situation that we presently have. Now, the second thing you notice, he's speaking specifically about pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Uh, This carries the idea of distresses having to do with carrying, having children. We could ask, those who know better than the other half of us. Um, I'm always well, a little bit amused when I hear some men talk as if they experienced childbirth. I, I wonder wondered, where were you when your kids were born? You must be kidding me. <laughs> uh, in fact... Uh, we get a new uh, appreciation for our wives, and it gives a new new appreciation for the word labor. Uh, I don't think I really had a, an appreciation for labor till our first was born. Uh, in fact, I remember thinking when Patty woke me up, she was calm. She'd already gotten up, taken the bath, and was ready to go. And she woke me up, and I was stressed out. And I remember thinking, here, I was stressed out, and I wasn't even the one going to experience it, at least not firsthand. And I remember thinking, if I could reverse the process right now, I would. <laughs> Imagine, men, what our wives must have been thinking uh, on those occasions. The stresses and tensions and pains that accompany having children are a new, were a new experience, uh, and again, remember that first trip to the hospital that you took. I don't know. Well, anyway, I won't, I won't speak any more of things that I don't know firsthand. So uh, you don't mind, do you? Uh, we don't know whether God caused a physiological change to take place or not, but it would, it would appear that something changed as far as childbearing is concerned. One author suggested maybe they were on a different diet afterwards. I don't know. That seems kind of weak. Uh, If that were the case, you could make a fortune if you could come up with that diet. What do you think, ladies? Would you subscribe to that diet? In a heartbeat. Uh, Somebody was talking a little earlier about one of their children being born, and they kept saying to the doc, "Um, I can still feel this. Give me some more. Uh, stuff so i can 't feel this, and the doc says, You need to feel some of it and so that things will work properly anyway it 's been stated or observed, God mercifully tempers the pain with the great joy which children give. Uh, do you remember the statement that Jesus made about that? Ladies, do any of you remember what Jesus said about childbearing? Whenever a woman is in travail, it says she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. What overshadows all the birth pains? The delight of having a newborn child uh, safely uh, arriving, so... And some of you have uh, attested to that through the years that 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 was the case. Anybody have any comments there you want to make or observations? All right, moving on. Number four, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, be aware that this phrase is widely discussed and just as widely disagreed upon as to exactly what it means. I know you, you have an opinion on it, and, and you know exactly what it means. Well, good. Let me just give you some that have been given. Uh, the phrase means your desire will be to your husband means that a woman's desire would be subject to her husband's desire. Uh, in other words, he continues, her desire, whatever it may be, will not be her own. She can't do what she wishes, for her husband rules over her like a despot, and whatever she wishes is subject to his will. That's one possibility. Another suggested the woman will have a great longing, yearning, and physiological dependence or psychological dependence on her husband. This yearning is morbid. It's not merely sexual yearning. It includes the attention that uh, a woman experiences, or attraction rather, she experiences for a man which she can't root from her nature. It's kind of like uh, when you see radical feminists getting married, uh, who before uh, didn't affirm the value of it, Uh, getting married to two men, that is. All right, another, a fourth, or a third, the woman will desire to dominate the relationship with her husband. This view rests on the parallel Hebrew construction in Genesis 4-7. The curse here describes the beginning of the battle of the sexes, it's been described this way. After the fall, the husband no longer rules easily. He might fight for his headship. The woman's desire is to control her husband, and he must uh, to usurp his divinely appointed headship. She has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. And so the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, domination, manipulation. I don't know. That seems to me like it might be a better better understanding of the the phrase that both seek to dominate. But historically, uh, has been pretty much the case that oftentimes men dominated even if women desired to do that, take that, uh, that role. And then finally, D, the woman would continue to desire to have sexual relations with her husband even though after the fall she experienced increased pain and childbearing. So there's more pain, And uh, that school of thought is that uh, she uh, desired to still be with her husband, uh, whether there was pain or not involved in childbearing, which there is, obviously. And then the last phrase kind of spells it out, what it would be like, uh, at least as a general observation. What's it going to be like in general, ladies? What does it say? Oh, I know there's a blank there in there in that one. He shall rule over you. It's interesting, that word that's used is the same word used in the Old Old Testament, mashal, for what kings did. Kings ruled over uh, the people in their kingdom, and that's the same one. John MacArthur says, you were were once co-regents, but now he has installed an office over you. So it was a different relationship in the Garden of Eden uh, before sin than it is now as described here. The woman's relationship to her husband was prescribed. Adam should have led, and Abe, Eve should have followed. But such was not the case in the fall. Therefore, from this time on, women were to be ruled by men, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, what does history tell us about how women have been treated, by and large? Not, just, not in America as much. We think. Have women always been treated well? They have not. Uh, History tells us that down through the the centuries of time, a lot of women have had a difficult lot in life. Many cultures, they've been considered little more than slaves or property. Often husbands had complete power of life and or death over them. We hear that kind of stuff. We think, what? You must be kidding me. What kind of a civilization was that? Well, Rome, for instance, didn't regard women as equal to men before the law. They received only a basic education. They didn't want their ladies to be uh, educated, apparently. Uh, They were subject to the authority of a man. Traditionally, before they got married, their father was the one who basically owned them. And then after they got married, their husband did. However However wealthy they were, because they could not vote, or stand for office, women had no formal role in public life. In reality, wives or close relatives of prominent men could have political influence behind the scene, but they couldn't out uh, out in the public forum. They were, uh, in public, women were expected to play their traditional role in the household, and that's all they could do beyond that. Uh, what about in cultures, uh, what we would call primitive cultures? Um, I was reading a, an article about some, uh, a testimonial by some missionaries in, Pap- or in Papua New Guinea. Early missionaries heard the cry of a widow after she went outside the camp upon the death of her husband. They ran out uh, to hear what the cries were from to discover that she'd been shot full of arrows and the body thrown in the river. Uh, and that was, in that culture, not the exception, but the rule so you can see that women weren't treated well in that, uh, that civilization. And I like, uh, uh, MacArthur sums it up this way. He says, the plight of many women in the world today is very difficult. We have it the best here in America, and still the plight of women is very difficult. I've seen the struggles that women go through in all corners of the world. It's very hard being a woman, and throughout human history, it's been very hard. And I would say even harder than it is uh, in our culture. And in many places in the world today, it's very different than it has been since ancient times. What was one of the things that came along that did the most to turn that around, do you think? What happens when Christianity comes into cultures, affects cultures? When New Testament Christianity begins to take place and uh, in places like, say, for instance, Rome where women were property. Does the Bible describe women that way? The Bible doesn't describe them that way. So when they go by the biblical standards, uh, the, the culture begins to change. And, uh, and I would say that it was not till Christianity came along that women began gaining some of their original position in the household and in society, like would have been describ- described in the Bible. Having said that, however, the dominance of the man is still seen in the program of the church as far as leadership. Uh, Does it imply superiority, the Bible? It does not. Does it imply uh, more intellectual prowess for men that men have, that men are smarter than women? I'd say not hardly. Look around. Uh, we can all think at times in our marriage, you guys that are married, you can think at times that, that uh, and it's not, not unusual that your wife's judgment on something was better than yours was, even though you might have had a hard time admitting that that was the case. Uh, so no, it doesn't have anything to do with superiority or smartness. Uh, we are to lead, however, by love. Men are. Our leadership is to be at our own personal sacrifice, seeking what is best for our wife, Biblical leadership is patterned patterned after the Lord. Because of the disobedience of that original couple, Satan was pronounced as being doomed. Snake was placed in a, a position of degradation, vilification. But for men, this had an incredible impact. So, back to our concentric circles that we labored so diligently to come up with. So, if that describes, I think we needed a great great big rock, don't you, to make it more impress, I- I- impressive. Anyway, uh, if that represents, we'll say it represents uh, Adam and Eve's sin, the next slide may describe our addition to the, the picture. So, what happens when we sin, as far as our influence, as far as the effect on others? You've seen it in your family, haven't you? Uh, all of our families, Uh, that happens from time to time, that sin just has far-reaching results. And uh, it's a good uh, motivator for us to live for the Lord and have testimonies that are uh, outstanding for Him. We find ourselves caught in those original concentric circles, and now concentric circles are coming out from our own personal lives uh, because of sin. Our spouses, our children, our friends, the people we know are affected by our sin as well. Don't you think, don't think that you can sin and the concentric circles caused by it won't affect those around, or that it's just a plunk in the water and no ripples. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, even though I think a lot of times people think, well, I can do this, and just just affects me. Nobody knows, so I'm the only one affected by this particular thing. Thankfully, Genesis 3.15 is there, and it describes where the circle started. We're also told in seed form that God would provide a way to escape those circles. The way of escape is through repentance and personal faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would come, die on a cross, be raised again for the forgiveness of our sin upon our personal faith in Jesus Christ. I would suggest to you that Christianity brings us back to a position much like that was in the Garden of Eden before sin, both in the home and in the church. What happens when you throw sin in the mix then? More circles. It messes up the mix again. Uh, So we want to keep being obedient to the Lord, keep living for him, and uh, certainly makes a huge difference in our life and in the lives of those around us. How about other comments that you've probably had, probably thoughts that you've had as we were looking at this passage? There are quite a few different ways to take the uh, the one verse there that we, t- we talked about. Any thoughts on that? Yes, Philip? Uh, you can't imagine concentric circles and mm-hmm.
1: Serpent, there will be a there will be a safe point
0: passed, not for Satan but for us. Amen. Good, good thought. <clears throat> Anybody else? All right, let's play, pray then and be dismissed. Lord, thank you for today. We uh, think of the consequences of sin, and our tendency is to think, "Well, how could Adam and Eve have done that? They should have known better." And yet, we forget that we do the same thing. Uh, We should know better, oftentimes, and uh, we go ahead and do it anyway. So, pray that you will give us the uh, self-control, the spirit control to, if there are any areas in our life right now that we've been wrestling with, or we should be wrestling with, and help us to uh, get rid of those with your help, help us to clean up our lives, help us to Live holy lives that are pleasing to Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen. We are dismissed.